Aloha Church. We just want to welcome all of you this morning. It is uh, a special morning, not just because we're out here on the field under tents, but because it is also our seven-year anniversary as a church. And uh, if you would open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, this morning we're going to be in verses 12 through 14. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that no matter where we are at, either in a beautiful building, in a theater, in a cafeteria, or in the field under these tents, we are still your church, and your word is true. And Father, we can be transformed, we can be shaped, we can be molded by your word right now. We thank you for that. And Father, we ask that you would be amongst us by the power of your Spirit. Would you anoint me? Would you anoint all of us to hear and to understand your word, Father? Let me get out of the way, Lord. And may you, Father, have your way this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have come to the end of our study in 1 Peter, we have come to the final verses of Peter's epistle. And these verses are a summation of everything that Peter has said. Um, this is his final greeting. It's believed that Peter is writing this letter from uh, Rome. At that time, Rome was also referred to as Babylon, as we see in verse 13. The actual city of Babylon uh, the ancient city was basically ruined at this time, uh, but the symbol that it carried, the symbol of greatness, the symbol of world power and dominance over nations, that symbol now belonged to Rome. Rome was the central hub of the modern world. They were the conquerors. All nations were subject to them. They carried all the cultural influences. And so naturally, Rome got that nickname of being the Babylon of that time. And so we read in verse 1, by Sil Sil I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Uh, Silvanus, also known as Silas, uh, we see him all throughout the Bible um, in Acts. Uh, he was one of the great missionaries who served alongside Paul and uh, Peter. He went on missionary journeys with them. Uh, he had a prophetic gift, and as Peter says, he was a faithful brother. And so Silas was a man that was commissioned to go and to deliver this letter to the churches in Asia Minor. And so Peter makes sure at the end of this letter to qualify Silas as a faithful brother so that the churches... Uh, who may not be familiar with him, would accept him and receive him as their own. In those times, those who would bring the letter 
were not just messengers who were delivering uh, just the envelope. They were also representatives of the sender. Silas would be the one who would initially read the letter to the church and expound on it. He would explain the letter to them. He would preach through it. So there had to be a great deal of unity, a great deal of closeness and trust between Peter, who penned the letter, and Silas, who was the messenger. And that's exactly who he was, a trusted brother, faithful, worthy to deliver and expound on Apostle Peter's letter. And what I want to do this morning with you guys is spend uh, the majority of our time on the remaining words in verse 12, specifically these words, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Grace is one of those words that um, has been overused. We've lost a lot of meaning. But what is grace? And how does God display grace? In simple terms, grace means undeserved favor, undeserved merit. It's the great act of goodness that someone does for nothing in return. The command for us to be gracious to one another is displayed at its best when someone offends us, when someone hurts us, and we respond with blessing. The person did not deserve blessing, but you blessed them. You did something good for them in return, and that's to be gracious. You're not paying back according to what they deserve. That's grace. But grace find it, finds its best meaning in the expression of divine grace. Grace that comes from God. To receive grace from the king and creator of everything, to receive grace from God is a whole nother level of undeserved favor. Especially in light of our sin and the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God because we have sinned against God. Because we have lived our lives in rebellion to our God and our Creator, we deserve the just penalty, which is eternal damnation. If you would turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, I want to show you in this text the expression of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, And you were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air. He's talking about Satan here. We followed Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We live to please ourselves, our desires, not God's. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath means we were headed in the inevitable 
direction of destruction to receive God's just wrath. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2 is a great summation of who we were, where we were headed, and how God graciously intervened to save us. And the reason that God is able to save sinners is because the penalty for our sin has been paid by the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus and what He has done is the greatest expression of God's grace. It is grace that changes everything for those who have experienced it. It changes the course of our entire eternal destiny. That is what God's grace looks like. And most Christians will agree with this. At least they better, or they're not Christians. Most Christians will agree on the... Sad to say, many don't. Most Christians will agree on the eternal ramifications, the eternal results of God's grace. But when it comes to understanding how the grace of God works and plays itself out in the daily life of a believer, that's where a lot of confusion exists. That's where a lot of misunderstanding and disagreement is. We as Christians have different expectations of how His grace plays out in our lives. Some think that the true grace of God is freedom from all suffering, freedom from all problems. True grace of God is the life of bliss and ease. We perceive God's grace as a cherry on top of our perfect, polished lives. We see grace as a security card that we hold to make sure that we end up in the right place when we die. That's pretty much the end of the understanding of God's grace for a lot of Christians. Looking over this letter, we see that that is not what Peter means by the true grace of God. As we saw over the past six months, Peter is writing this letter to the persecuted church. And here is how life looked for the Christians addressed in this letter. They are not living their best life now. Because they have committed to a life devoted to Jesus, they are experiencing very uncomfortable and hostile circumstances. They are suffering for their faith. They're in the midst of trial. The culture has rejected them. They are mocked for not participating in the sins of their culture. Their good deeds are being repaid with evil. And just like those churches, when we commit to a life devoted to our King, Jesus, we will often experience the same trials. That is the result of counter-cultural living. 
So in this letter, Peter writes to encourage these Christians, to instruct these Christians. Peter reminds them and us that this world is not our home. Our hope is in the resurrected Jesus. And we have an internal inheritance and a kingdom to which we belong. And not only that, but Christians are not people who are just scattered throughout the world without a purpose or place, but we are the fulfillment of God's temple. We are individually living stones that make up the structure of God's house. And our purpose as Christians is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter instructs these believers on how they are to deal with injustice that is done against them, how they are to treat their neighbors and their fellow brothers. And Peter also gives them a clear explanation of the purpose of suffering in a Christian life. So Peter is breathing life into these suffering Christians. He is reminding them of these truths. He sets their gaze on Jesus and the glory that they will share with their Lord. And so in the closing thoughts, to summarize everything covered in this letter, to summarize all of their suffering, to summarize all his instruction to their suffering, Peter says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, by this he means everything he said briefly in this letter, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That is radically different from the way we expect God to play out his grace in our lives. The true grace of God was not a cherry on top of polished lives for these Christians. And it's not the way it works today. When we, when we think about persecution and suffering, when we think about our identity and where we belong in a culture that is rejecting us, when we think about how we are to relate to people who scoff and desire evil against us because of the gospel, Peter is not giving advice on how to escape persecution. He's not giving us ideas on how we can make ourselves more comfortable. He's not making promises that if we wait for a few more years, that suffering will end and things will get better. No. He shows us that the grace of God is in the midst of the pain and the suffering. And he, God uses this to shape and mold us in order to present us pure and holy. He uses pain for our good and for his glory. God is not in the business to make your life perfect, comfortable, and pain-free. True Christianity never promised that. But he is, God is in the business to purify us to get rid of our imperfections and to prepare us for a life of glory with Him while we will worship our King and, ex and, and, and to experience the pleasures with Him that cannot compare to anything that the best experiences in this world can offer. That is the true grace of God at work.
It's not about what you did or what you're doing for God, but the true grace is about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and is continuing to do in our life. It's His work, not ours. I have, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Everything that Peter has briefly written about, it's not a suggestion or a recommendation. It's, Peter isn't offering us just a different option to consider. Hey guys, you can leave it or take it. No, he says, I am exhorting and I am declaring to you. I am urging and proclaiming to you that this is the truth. There is no other way. Here's the thing. We live in a world where everyone deals with the consequences of sin. Everyone deals with pain and suffering. Some deal with it by drowning it out and filling their life with worldly pleasures. Some deal with it by turning to religion that offers ways to earn favor with a promise that you can somehow escape the challenges of life. Others deal with it to various philosophies. Peter doesn't offer morality. He doesn't offer philosophy. Peter says only the true grace of God is where you will find meaning and purpose even in the midst of your suffering. In the last phrase, in verse 12, he says, stand firm in it. Stand firm in the true grace of God. He says that because we are tempted to abandon. We are tempted to step off the path of grace with so much other ways, with so much quote-unquote truths being offered to us, we are constantly compelled. We are constantly bombarded by our flesh, by the world, and by the enemy to leave behind the narrow path of grace and to believe something else. Your flesh will entice you to escape pain by finding pleasures outside of God. The world will tell you, Abandon your God and find acceptance and approval from the culture. And the enemy will use hardships and suffering to discourage you and to tell you that God has abandoned and he has forgotten you. Wide and very comfortable is the road that leads to destruction. And Peter says, no, stand firm in the true grace of God. Do not step away. God means to use everything in your life for your good and for his glory. If you are not a believer, if you do not, if you have not experienced this relationship with Jesus, with, with your creator, with your king, if you do not know him personally, I urge you, I declare to you, come and experience the true grace of God. This is not a suggestion. This is not advice that you can take or leave. But this is a command that God declares to the world. Believe in Jesus. Repent of your sin, and He will lavish His grace on you. God's grace will be the most powerful 
force you will experience in your life. It will transform you from the inside out and bring you to glory and to his kingdom. The grace of God will make sense of your pain. It will redeem your life. No matter how messy it is, he will redeem it for his glory. That's the beauty of the gospel. Continuing in verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Peter is sending his final greetings, greetings from himself. He's sending greetings from uh, the saints in, of the church in Rome, and he's also sending greetings from a man named John Mark, who was a disciple of Peter. Peter calls Mark his son because Peter was the one that brought him to faith. Uh, he mentored him. He discipled him. He, he brought him to maturity. And just like, just like Paul brought and discipled uh, Timothy, Mark was also a man that wrote, that penned the gospel of Mark. Uh, he wrote it based on the accounts uh, of Peter, the stories that Peter has shared with him. Um, and Mark had went on missionaries, missionary journeys with the apostles, uh, specifically to Asia Minor, and that's how those churches knew him. So he sends, Peter sends Mark's greetings to them. And in closing, we read, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We are brothers and sisters united by Jesus. We are all purchased by his blood into his family. And here, uh, Peter is after our affection towards one another as believers. He says that there should be a distinguishable difference between the way we greet one another and the way we greet everybody else in this world. And for the early church and for some Christians around the world today, some type of kiss would do the job. Um, but hug, kiss, or a meaningful handshake, the point of this is to urge us to externally display to one another that there's a bond of love that unites us in Christ Jesus. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter ends this letter just like he started with a blessing of peace. This blessing echoes the words of Jesus out of John chapter 14, where Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Fitting words for a church that is in the persecution and suffering. The enemy who roars and prods like a lion, seeking who, to, who he can destroy. And the flame of persecution, they cannot overcome the peace that comes through Christ's salvation. That peace belongs to all who are in Christ, who are chosen in him before the foundations of the world, who are sprinkled clean with his blood, whose sins he bore on his body. They have not seen him, 
but they love him. And so they gladly share in his suffering right now and wait eagerly for his appearance when soon they will share in his heavenly glory. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, that you don't sweep pain, suffering under the rug, but you, God, use it for your glory. You use it to shape us and mold us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you said we are more precious than gold. Father, we are precious to you. And Lord, you use the pressures of this uh, life to remove the impurities that are within us. Lord, we thank you for the book of Peter, for this epistle that prepares us, Lord, that gives us tools, that gives us an understanding of the pain and of the suffering that we all deal with. That you, Father, we thank you that you bring meaning to our pain. And Lord, as we, uh, Father, close the chapters to this book, Father, may we remember these words. May the Holy Spirit imprint these words on our hearts. And God, for those who have not experienced this kind of suffering, Lord, uh, may they not dismiss this. And Lord, may those who are in the midst of this suffering right now, I'm thinking of Carol, who, whose, whose daughter is on her deathbed, on the verge of dying in the next couple hours right now. And, and, and Carol cannot, does not have permission to come into Germany and be with her daughter. Lord, as she is suffering in this moment, God, may your peace be with her. May these words encourage her, Father. Lord, we thank you for your beautiful word, for your beautiful truth, and that you meet us wherever we're at. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.